Hello, my friends. This is life coach Mike Chargman, and welcome to an episode of Mike's Search for Meaning. I'm after some big questions. Why are we here? What makes a fulfilling life? How can we grow individually and collectively? Each episode, I'll dive deep with leaders who are doing great work in the world and see how they organize their life. Books read, value systems, resources used, and stories that show how each of you can create the life and the world of your dreams. On today's episode of Mike's Search for Meaning, my guest is Rabbi Matthew Ponak. Rabbi Matthew is a teacher of embodied mysticism, a spiritual counselor, and the co-founder of the Mekara Institute, an online spiritual center. Also holding an MA in contemplative religions from the Buddhist-inspired Naropa University, Rabbi Matthew weaves world wisdom with ancient Jewish insights. He received ordination from Hebrew College, where he specialized in the study of Hasidic teachings and Kabbalah, and his upcoming book, Embodied Kabbalah, Jewish Mysticism for All People, articulates a Jewish language for grounded spirituality and puts Kabbalistic texts in dialogue with psychology, shamanism, and world religions. And if you're like me, a lot of this intro would have been nonsensical or is nonsensical. There are so many words in here that I would not have identified with or would have shunned or written off as not grounded and not real, including but not limited to embodiment, mysticism, spirituality, shamanism. And what I love about Rabbi Matthew is he takes all of these abstractions and concepts that might be theoretical or theological and talk about God and the universe, he makes them very practical and grounded. And that's where his work around embodiment comes in. We have so much wisdom in our bodies. And he talks about how that has informed his journey a little bit and how he grew up as someone not particularly religious like me and who felt a calling to become a rabbi, which was a massive surprise to him. So this conversation opened my world to all sorts of things. And my hope is that you'll debunk some myths about what it means to be religious, what it means to be a rabbi, what it means to be Jewish, and you'll have some new ideas about what spirituality and mysticism mean and how in a lot of ways, they're actually really practical takeaways that we can use in our everyday life and it connects to our purpose and being part of something greater than ourselves in a lot of ways. So with all of that said, I will let Rabbi Matthew do the rest of the talking here. Let's settle in, take a deep breath, and enjoy this conversation. Rabbi Matthew, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's a real pleasure, and you have so many different interesting areas that I want to explore with you. But I want to start with you the same way that I start with all of my guests. I'm really interested in upbringing and how that informs the way that we are and the choices that we make as adults. And I wanted to start by asking you, what was it like at your dinner table when you were growing up? My dinner table? Wow. Well, I have to say I had a few different dinner tables because I uh, had a, a mixed family by the time that I was 10 years old. So in my first dinner table, which was when my uh, father and mother were married, I have one brother and 
I was so young at that point, it doesn't have a, a through line to my later years, but I do remember starting off every meal with raw vegetables. <laughs> that was the requirement, no matter what we ate after that, there was always raw vegetables. I remember there was a, a custom of teasing my father for his sense of humor, which we had decided as a family was very bad, even though he's a professor. And later in life, I read his reviews on ratemyprof.com and people almost across the board said that he was really funny. So looking back, it must have just been the way that the family culture developed. But I, I have a brother and him and I would do a fair amount of bickering as, as younger kids and, you know, running around and teasing each other. Uh, but generally speaking, it was a fairly healthy dinner and not a whole lot of ritual surrounding it. We didn't, growing up, I grew up a Jewish family, but we didn't do Shabbat, for example. We didn't, we, the only real ritual meal we had as a family every year with guests was, was a Passover meal. And we might have latkes on Hanukkah or something like that. But by and large, it was a fairly secular, casual, comedic time. A lot of joking and sarcasm in my family. And then from the age of 10 till 18, I had a, a blended family. Also, my step family is Jewish as well. And that any comedy or let's say intellectualism or even in fact, religious irreverence was only amplified through that. This is my father's wife and her two sons. And so there were four brothers, all within a three-year age span, meaning my older brother was a year and a half older than me. I had a younger stepbrother named Matt, who was two months younger than me. And I had a younger stepbrother as well, youngest, who was a year and a half younger than me. So that was four brothers, basically all going through teenagehood at the same time. So it was very fast talking. It was very sarcastic, comedic, not terribly emotionally uh, deep or aware in that way, but it was a lot of fun and also good, relatively healthy food, not a whole lot of ritual, generally speaking, until I kind of embraced religion later on in my teen years. Yeah. But I think this stereotype I've come to know as, as a fairly Jewish stereotype within the Jewish world is that a lot of people socialize by taking on a bit. They're almost improving. So mm -hmm. I didn't realize it at the time, but we were practicing comedy with each other. We were practicing acting and that was the way that we interacted. We had fun, but it was also the way that we expressed negative emotion as a joke. So if someone had upset me, I might take on a character who was filled with murderous rage and I wouldn't attack anyone, but it would be, oh, I'm going to kill you. That kind of attitude was, I wouldn't say in the hierarchy of emotional intelligence, the most adaptive way of expressing emotions, but it's certainly better than keeping it in. So a lot of that part of me was really cultivated at, around the dinner table, especially. Hmm. Well, I'm really interested to hear that there were two things that struck me the most. I mean, it, it sounds like it was a very entertaining dinner table, but I experience you now to be someone who is connected with his emotions and the, the depth of being a person. I mean, you, you chose to be a rabbi after all. And I guess they're connected. What I'm really curious about is you said in your teen years, that's when you started to become more connected to Judaism and religion. And what, what do you think inspired that? It doesn't sound like it was really cultivated from your family. It sounds like a very secular, like my upbringing, right? Like we were raised Jewish, but it was, it was never something that was going to be, my life was going to be dedicated to being a, a devout religious Jew. So what drew you to become more religious? And what were some of the ways that you got more in touch with the, the deeper parts of you that maybe weren't 
cultivated in your household when you were younger? Yeah, well, so like you were saying, I didn't say this explicitly, but, you know, I, I grew up, I had a bar mitzvah. I went to Jewish day school, so I had sort of a, a foundation of Hebrew and some of the history, but it wasn't until I was 16 years old that I ever heard anyone talking about Judaism like it meant something deeper than this is our culture, we're passing it on. And a friend of mine named Mark, who, who was a very intelligent, curious person, and as a teenager, all the more so, and he had kind of gotten interested in Judaism as more than this culture that we're passing on. And it was a phase for him, interestingly, but he brought me to a class taught by a modern Orthodox, very spiritual Jewish woman who lived in Calgary, where I grew up in Canada. And I remember it was a class for teenagers and she was teaching it. She had taught at the reform synagogue, actually teaching kind of the Sunday school education because she was fairly pluralistic in her outlook on Judaism. And there was a teenage class now of people who she had taught from younger. And it was a very spiritual encounter. I had never in, known anything at that point in my life that I could describe as spiritual. It didn't, I didn't know I had an interest in it, but I sat in that first class and it was all about the experience of prophecy from this Jewish mystical modern Orthodox lens of what, yeah, we heard about what a prophet does to hear God's voice, but it was this whole layer of teachings around that, that basically said prophets were trained. They weren't born. Prophecy was an extremely difficult spiritual level to attain. And if you attained it, it wasn't just hearing a voice. It was something far more profound than that. And just because the voice of God in the Charlton Heston movie about Moses was very deep and Moses, it didn't mean that's actually what it was. It could have been very soft or very subtle. It could have been more than a voice. It could have been something with all senses simultaneously that it basically opened up this whole world, which I had never encountered before. And it was essentially my introduction to spirituality and my introduction to Jewish spirituality and my introduction to Orthodox Judaism all at the same time. And I found it very inspiring. Like I remember sitting in that class. It was in an evening, maybe a Thursday evening or something, and maybe 10, 12 people at the table and feeling like there was a part of me that had just woken up that I never even knew was there. It was the best way of describing it uh, there's a Hebrew word which can be translated a number of ways, but it's sechel. And the way that it was taught in that class, the word meant, and I, I still think about it to this day, it's where the intellect meets the soul. Mm. It was it were ideas being discussed, but it was more than just memorization or facts. There was something really innately spiritual. It was wise mind. It was beyond sort of the didactic, you know, rational approach. There was something holy about the ideas. So something woke up essentially, and that began a several year journey gradually and then kind of all at once into the Orthodox realm and into a very halachic Jewish legal life that was also coupled with a very ecstatic form of spirituality. So one that was more about, I don't know if I would have phrased it like this at the time, but about bliss and expansion and going higher, getting closer to God, and I don't know if that's an emotional intelligence. I actually think it's not in hindsight. So my path into that world started at, at that class and continued. I took it for another year and a half. I graduated. I ended up going to Israel, joining a yeshiva, like a seminary. And I was learning and I was really on this orthodox path. 
And it was not about self-awareness at that point as much as it was about reaching the divine mm. and in a, in a more expansive ecstatic way. At some point, I kind of took that road as far as it could take me and realized that it's very difficult to contain immense amount of, of light, of mystical, spiritual light, and that it can actually be damaging. And so when I, like a moth to flame, perhaps, when I got burnt sufficiently uh, by in, trying to just go directly towards that over the years, and I'm happy to go into more details, over the years, I encountered more of a psycho-spiritual, like psychology meets spirituality model that helped me turn that quest more inwardly and I began to, to start paying more attention to my emotional realm, which it turns out when you have an ecstatic spiritual life and you're ignoring your emotions, it's not a coincidence. Often it's because there's stuff going on internally that's difficult to face and it's easier to try and dissolve into the infinite as opposed to simply understanding the reasons why you're acting how you are or feeling how you are. Hmm. Well, I wanted to... I'm going to put a pin in the emotions that you didn't want to face. And I, I want to come back to that. I'm picturing a, a faction of my listeners who are having an allergic reaction to the word spirituality in, in much the way that I would have if I heard this podcast, maybe even only three or four years ago. There's just something loaded about that word that turns people off. It certainly did for a lot of my life. And I would love to hear from you, what does spirituality mean? How, how would you define it to the lay person? I would call it intentional living. Or another way you could describe it is going beyond. And I mean that in every sense of the word. So what it can mean to go beyond for one person is... I have a life and I know I have potential to become self-actualized, to live in a way that I can feel great, that I'm helping people in a way that I can, basically coming into your own. And that needs to happen, I believe, step by step. Most people cannot drastically transform themselves all at once. So someone might realize that they have uh, an inherent laziness, let's say. That's even a harsh word. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's a mental health struggle that's keeping them down. Or maybe they're spending too much on time on social media, which I don't think is so far from an addiction these days. Going beyond in that sense means taking the next step in their journey. So I don't think that whatever spirituality means, right? If, if we're calling it going beyond, and I'm happy to get more into why I use the term spiritual, but there's no particular direction a person needs to go in, in my opinion, as long as they're maintaining kindness in their lives. Like that to me is the gold standard for any life, but especially for someone who's going to call themselves spiritual or religious, it's very important to be at the very least maintaining that sense of, of social responsibility to each other and to ourselves to some degree. But there are people many people who I have met through my work and just sort of what my path has been, who might start with something that looks closer to self-discipline going beyond about getting a better hygiene around their tech use or starting to dream about what they could be beyond what they were supposed to be, what their culture or their family told them they had to be. And they start kind of going outside of the box a little bit. And what might look very ordinary at first within the realm of 
accepted science or self-help in the most sort of everyday way might actually end up leading them towards things that they didn't know even existed in terms of consciousness. And when I say consciousness, that's basically a, a, another word for mind. The experience of many people, myself and people I am in touch with professionally and socially, and written in books from you know time immemorial is that at some point leading an intentional life, leading a life of, of attempting to go beyond where we are and growing, it's not uncommon for people to encounter something that isn't within the realm of ordinary. It isn't within the realm of standard, rational, linear consciousness. And when we start getting into that territory of altered states of consciousness or expanded states of consciousness, that's where people start using the word spirituality more often. And the word spirituality comes originally as an in opposition to corporeality, that this old idea that our bodies were somehow lowly. And we're talking about like middle ages and prior to that, they say, you know, and the, but the mind and the spirit were this lo these lofty things. So that's where the term comes from. And it has this sense of going beyond. It actually is surprising and nice to hear from you that there are people who are listening to this podcast who don't like the word because I'm always looking for new terms to connect. Spirituality to me really signals a lot of what I was describing. But if someone has lacks a, a, a like for it, if they have a, a bad taste in their mouth, essentially from spirituality, I don't need to use that term. It's really about going beyond and being open to what's next, which includes in how I approach the world and how I teach non-ordinary states of consciousness and the realizations and the experiences that come from that. Yeah. So what I hear you saying in a lot of ways, and this is my interpretation of the word spirituality as well in, in some ways, is there's, there's a dimension in the world that maybe our five senses can't fully comprehend. Like our, our mind tries to make sense of everything and some things are incomprehensible. So that's where you hear people starting to talk about invoking God or the universe or something that's just bigger than us. And I think all of us at some point or another access that one of the ways that you said it happens is that we start living more intentionally. Maybe we start taking more control of certain areas of our life. We do just naturally stumble upon realizing these things. And that has certainly been true in my life. Like one of the, one of the first big changes I made in my life was around my nutrition and feeling more connected to the food that I'm eating. And then by, by way of that, my own body has just, a, it's opened me up to things that were at one point, not even, they were not remotely online. So uh, I, I love this, this invitational quality of like, yeah, we, we all have these types of experiences one way or another. Spirituality is a word that some of us, like I said, might have a reaction to, but I think we all encounter it at some point in our life. I wanted to circle back around the emotions that you said you were on this type of quest, maybe to transcend or to be something just way bigger than you and to find the light. What were some of the emotions that you were not confronting or that were really challenging to face? Yeah. And if it's okay, I want to just return back to something you said a moment ago before sure. getting to this question, which is this. Words also like God fall into that category. I have found that people tend to react quite strongly to the word God. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, that's 
I think, a fairly common thing because a lot of people have inherited either a culture that is oppressive in some way or restrictive or, or strict around religion, or they're the children of people who rejected it and are passing on a certain distaste for words like God and, and religious structures. So when people ask me, you know, how can I understand God or what is this whole God thing? Or is it good to believe in God? The answer I usually give is something like, if you're going to ask, do I believe in God? You're basically asking yourself, do I believe in someone else's version of what's really going on here? That someone a long time ago had an experience or used their minds and imagined what could be. And they passed that on. And that was sort of what we now believe in. And that is maybe a useful exercise is do I believe in that or not? But from the experiential perspective of conscious living, of spirituality and going beyond, it's not about someone else's version. It's about using your experience to assess what's really going on here. And that's not theology. That's not a construct about what God is and therefore what we should do. That is what do your experiences tell you? And if someone says, well, I've never had a non-ordinary state encounter. Okay, so what does that tell you about the world? Well, it seems like material. Great. Would you be open to trying some meditations? Or are you? do you have a curiosity about this beyond a theoretical? And if the answer is no, okay, good luck. You're like, oh, I wish you well. And if the answer is yes, I want to know so I can assess for myself. I'll say, okay, let's do some practices. Maybe I can guide you through something using embodiment, for example, that might lead you. There's no guarantees in any of this, but you could have a moment where you tap into a part of yourself that you didn't know was there. And then you can process that. You know what I mean? That spirituality and God and words like that, they can be extremely powerful and evocative for people. They can also really turn them off. But when I think about God, I think about experiences that take us beyond our five senses, like you were saying. And a lot of people in history and religious history have labeled that God. So I don't differentiate, is that good? Is that bad? It's okay, that's someone's understanding of their experience. Sure, what's my understanding of my experience and how? who do I trust in to relay these experiences? Those are, I think today, it's more experience-based. It's almost like being an inter, inner scientist. Hmm. What, what's, what are my encounters? You know, what did I think was gonna happen? How do I evaluate this? What is my conclusion that I'm drawing? And it's less about believing in something that someone else thinks is a good idea. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, it relates to emotions because what I found over the years, once I started to turn more inwards, is that what can start as an emotion, whether positive or negative, and most contemplation, most things that have called me towards contemplation in my life have been on the negative side, that sometimes it'll start with anxiety, let's say, and it won't be too long until I understand what's going on beneath it. I'll have a cathartic moment or an inner shift and then something beautiful will appear, whether it feels a spaciousness or some kind of inner, I mean, in more sort of extreme forms and inner bliss, but maybe it's just a, a calm or something changes. So the path into emotion does not have to just lead to emotion. It can lead to other things as well that can manifest through the mind, through the body. But the, the list of emotions that were challenging for me that started to surface sort of on the, uh, the down, downward descent from my orthodox years were things like depression and anxiety, 
I think I really, if I suffered, it was much more of a kind of an inwardly turned anger as opposed to outward. I didn't express much anger for most of my life up until that point. So shame, doubt, depression, anxiety, a social nervousness. I was on paper, you know, in school and university doing fairly well, but there was a lot of inner blockages and some of these things that I think a lot of millennials face of just those kind of that neurosis, the, the mental health challenges that a lot of people have uh, were things that were really up for me at that time. So you mentioned some practices or meditations maybe that you, maybe these days you're guiding people into those types of practices. I'd be curious to hear for you when you were dealing with anxiety, depression, social, social anxiety, sounds like you're just wrestling with like, who am I and how am I showing up in different areas of my life? Did you like, what were some practices that were helpful? And then maybe were there teachers, mentors, religious teachings that you turned to that helped you transcend those types of emotions or work through them and, and come out on the other side and have those powerful experiences that you were speaking of? Yeah, so the major methods that worked for me, some of them were just life practices. They weren't particularly meditative. When I realized that, and I think this is true for anyone, when I realized that if I slept a good amount and ate healthy foods by and large, and I exercised regularly and I stayed away from intoxicating substances, my life was just better that if I could, that's sort of the foundation of health in a lot of that. So yes, it's important to find tools that allow us to explore our emotions and a basic physical health is so supportive mm -hmm. in, in all of that. So that was a, that was a really important element of, of what I learned, but specifically the practice that has helped me the most is the orientation of feeling into the physical body itself and noting what emotional content is there as well. So at one point, I remember when I was first learning about this, I had, I was in a, I was in a role. I was in a professional role. It was more, I guess, administratively taxing than anything else I had done before. And it was fairly public and I was overseeing a large group in the Jewish community in Calgary. And the, the stress was pretty high. And I remember for a variety of reasons, I realized due to some contractual issues that it arise, it arose, it wasn't gonna work. And because it was public and because it was my community, there was some stress around that. And I remember it distinctly as a, as a pit in my stomach, a very strong, a knot. There was something in my belly that was really, really intense. So I got guidance. At that point, I was working with a transpersonal psychologist, someone who blends mystical insights with psychology. It's a whole school of thought. It's really interesting. A lot of it has come out of California, but also Colorado and a few other places. And it was really suited to me because I had all of these spiritual interests and I was grappling with emotional stuff. And it was a really nice combination. So the practice I learned, which there's many forms that exist today, a somatic psychology, a somatic experiencing, focusing, and then there's a whole lot of 
meditative schools that are employing this. There's a Jewish school that does it. It's basically feeling into that pit in my stomach and starting to get a sense, is there a, an image that appears? Is there a word that appears when I feel into that? And knowing that it was related to, I actually realized in my mind at the time, oh, this is related to a particular person who I know in the community who wasn't working with me, but who I admire and who was sort of had an inside view of this. And I was worried about being judged. And when I could realize that and, and kind of come to a place where I could essentially accept that judgment and, and kind of hear that inner critic voice and, and learn from it without letting it override me, all anchored in that feeling in my belly, the feeling in the belly actually started to change. It started to loosen. It was a tight knot initially and it got looser and I started having insights. And I can't remember all of the details, but that's the process. And it has, I've gone through that process thousands of times. It's something heavy comes, I feel into it in my body. I get some kind of message whether an image or a phrase or a word, or even like a desire for movement, sometimes even a smell will arise, things like that. And there's a, a change and it's a emotional release that happens. There's a physical difference in the feeling and there's an insight that comes. And with enough of those, it starts to change. And so that was the main practice. And I learned that over time, if I was able to grapple with these things on an individual basis, oh, so here's an event, here's a feeling, I can overcome it that enough of those shifts actually started to create another layer of foundation to go over my physical health foundation. And this was an emotional foundation that my average anxiety level was significantly decreased through this practice and my awareness of my body and the sensations and what they meant was, it was like exercising a muscle. I became much more capable of introspecting in this way. And yeah, again, that's the emotional realm. And eventually over time, I learned that this was also a gateway to non-ordinary states, that the body could also be a conduit, a medium or a vehicle towards things that I think about as, as divine or in, in the Kabbalistic universe of things that are not, even if they are physical, they're not normally acknowledged as existing, but the body could also be a house or a, yeah, a vessel to contain those experiences as well. Mm. Well, I just wanted to name a few things because there's a lot of gold in there. It's really refreshing to hear you as a rabbi talk about the simple practices of just eating really well, getting good night's sleep and movement. I think those are really the cornerstones of any health. It doesn't matter what you're up to, whether it's in religion or anything at all. It's hard to build on that foundation if it's not if you're not taking care of yourself in the very basic elemental ways. So like I am picturing my Hebrew school days and when I was growing up, that was I can't remember nutrition or movement ever being spoken about. It was really just a lot of information about Jewish history being taught to us and us memorizing lots of information. And when I hear you speak about what you do and what you're up to, that is maybe an, an element of what you do, but you're really looking at the whole person and saying, like, these, this is step one, make sure you're taking care of yourself. So this bit about embodiment and the sensation of our feelings, I really wanted to hone in on this because that this has been foundational in my journey as well. I think that every time that we feel a feeling we don't want to feel, maybe call it sadness or anger, there is an associated sensation in the body that 
typically we resist, right? And so there's any number of different ways that we might distract ourselves to avoid feeling that sensation. It could be social media, it could be Netflix. It even might be plowing ourselves into our work. It's like burying ourselves in doing anything except being with our present experience. And there, there are lots of different ways that you described it, like somatic experiencing, focusing, but really I want to make this really practical for the listener. All we're doing, and at least uh, this is my words, there's a sensation in the body. We're presencing ourselves to it and just becoming aware of it, noticing what is this feeling. And then it, I think the longer that we can just be present to it, there's this realization that, oh, this is, it's uncomfortable, but this is energy that is eventually going to move through my body. And it's got valuable information for me to pay attention to. So again, like very refreshing to hear you as a rabbi talk about this. I just, I have never had the experience of a rabbi talking about embodiment and like very basic <laughs> human needs. And I'd be curious to hear like where, where that came from and, and maybe what are some misconceptions that folks might have about what it means to be a religious Jew? <laughs> sure. And uh, well, first of all, thanks for your kind words. I, I want to start very quickly just to say there's a, a little bit of nuance in how you were describing the somatic process of presencing with the body. There's actually different approaches within these different worlds. And one of them is to be present with the feeling itself and just see what arises, just sort of a welcoming of it, uh, a trust in the process. But there are also methods that can be used to a little bit see if there's a, a quicker route. So asking the question of what do you have to tell me inwardly can actually lead to a symbolic answer, right? Like sort of symbols are the language of the subconscious, which is why myth and subconscious are so linked. So if I'm having a feeling in my chest, let's say that's tight, I could be with that and just witness it, which is a, sometimes an approach that is, that's what we need. And sometimes I want to be like, what's going on there? And now oh, I have an image now of like a treasure chest that's, that's locked. Oh, what's that about? Right. And there's, I can actually use my mind to analyze the symbol and then return to the feeling. So there's a lot of different approaches within the somatic universe. And I just wanted to offer that as maybe just broadening that a little bit. So what does it mean to be a religious Jew in light of this? So it, as, as this might sound a little surprising, but I don't consider myself religious. I see myself in many ways as a secular spiritual person who has been called deeply to Jewish wisdom. And what that means is I don't feel particularly beholden to any one system, including Jewish law, beyond the clear understanding that kindness is the bottom line. So I know from Jewish history that there are many phases that we have gone through. There have been times when great transformation has happened culturally for us. And I am interested in what that looks like today because the world is calling for it. Not only is it calling for our traditions more broadly to adapt and change and evolve, but coming from a Jewish angle, I think there are things that the world could benefit from that Judaism has very valued perspectives on, such as the Sabbath. Shabbat, this idea, can you imagine that if the whole world could unplug 
for a day and buy nothing and try to live in harmony with the land more so and use less electricity and just enjoy and celebrate all we have. Yes, there's a lot to fix, but the Jewish dynamic is some of the time we are working on the world because the world is not whole yet. And that includes us. We're also working on ourselves, but one day a week, we're celebrating all we are and all we have. And we design a life around that. I just there's a lot of potential for both of those things. So when I think about me as a religious person, I think about it more in that way. I want to harness the valuable gifts of Judaism and bring them forward. And the stuff that I don't find particularly helpful, I don't do. I don't feel a sense of obligation, if you know what I mean. I, I'm obliged to conscious living. I'm obliged to kindness. And I'm obliged to my personal work in the world that has to do with helping Judaism people and the world more broadly get to where we need to go next. We need to go beyond as a whole. Mm -hmm. And within that, one of the places my journey went after being in the Orthodox world, after discovering things like transpersonal psychology and learning what worked for me and what didn't, going and praying three times a day, honestly, was so powerful for me as a teenager that it was too much. And so doing something that involves the body and body health is very grounding. And at, when I realized all of that, I really, that paired with learning about religious history from an academic angle and feeling like, oh, well, the, the who wrote the Bible question is way different than I thought it was. I thought it was God and Moses. And now I understand that archaeology doesn't support that and biblical criticism doesn't support that. And so I start to realize, oh, it's a, a human authorship, multiple authorship document. And so at the same time that I'm deconstructing Judaism historically and its origins, I'm also encountering a whole world of spiritual practice that embodied practice that is, it left me feeling pretty resentful of a lot of the things I had inherited Jewishly. And eventually I ended up at a, at a Buddhist university in Boulder, Colorado, going to this, it was a world religions master's program. And I wanted to just explore and I was on a quest and I had basically left Judaism behind. But something happened to me. One of these non-ordinary states came upon me when I was just navigating that world. And I, as much as it was surprising to me, I felt like I was being called, guided by the beyond to become a rabbi. And it, it was very surprising because I wasn't wanting that necessarily. or I didn't in a million years think that's where I would be going. And I grappled with it for five years before I said, I'm going to go to rabbinical school for one year and give it a shot. And one year became two and two years became five. But the journey led me to find Jewish teachings that I had never known that even existed, many of which weren't translated or known at all, that essentially articulated the path that I had discovered through embodied spirituality. There is a Jewish language for all of these things. So everything I said right before you asked your question about caring for the body, about finding wisdom through the body and the emotions about finding that kind of balance about having a balance between work and rest all of those there are jewish teachings about that and it's possible to have basically a language for this emerging kind of embodied practice through jewish symbols and texts and that's a lot of what i'm doing with my work mm. could you walk us through what that calling to be a rabbi felt like and how how did you know that you were called to be a rabbi and like what was I guess paint paint the full picture what what was happening in your body what were was there something being spoken to you like well yeah how how did you know that you were being called to be a rabbi yeah that's that's a great question I 
I'm going to sort of go to the end before I go to the beginning. Sure. And I see careers and callings in careers, like I see relationships that, and this sounds totally cheesy and I wouldn't, I don't like that I discovered this, but at the end of the day, and it wasn't when I went to rabbinical school, it's when I graduated, basically, that I realized it's just, you know, when you know it, there's something about knowing what you're aligned with or knowing in a relationship, if you found that person, you know, you're still gonna have to do work with this person. Life isn't always easy. And, you know, some people are destined to have multiple partners, perhaps, right, over time, or maybe even all at once. But what I'm trying to say is, the end of my rabbinical journey to really making it all click, it just, I knew it so innately that it's like, I know why I don't want to get married to anyone else, that my wife is my partner. There's something just in, innate and in, indescribable about it. So there was a lot of work to get to that place, however. Basically, I moved to Colorado and I was really in my mind saying to myself on some level, I'm, I'm leaving Judaism behind. I'm going, it's a Buddhist university, it's a world religions program, and there's what they're called scholar practitioners. There's people teaching who have PhDs and are also practitioners. They're all spiritual teachers in one way or another, and they're coming from these different religious standpoints. It's just a fascinating mix. So I go there, and two weeks after I moved there, I had a friend's wedding in, in Calgary, and I, had, I drove back, a bit of a drive, and basically... At the wedding, someone used this word I had never heard before at the reception. We were just sitting at the same table and it was, the word was communitas. And I asked her what it meant. And she said, it means the feeling of community. It's, a, it's an anthropological or sociological term. The feeling of community. I thought it was really nice. And then two days later, I read it in one of my textbooks. And then the day after that, I read it in another textbook. And I was someone, I mean, to this day, who sometimes it feels like, life rhymes, you know, you have repeating patterns and that's what Carl Jung called synchronicity. And again, people can choose to interpret that how they want, but I have a tendency to look into it and not know what's there, but say, is there something meaningful that's happening here? So the word communitas, you know, the feeling of community appears three times in four days. And it was really note, just kind of noteworthy, but I didn't know what to make of it. Now, as it so happened, the next week, was Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. And as much as I was telling myself I was abandoning Judaism, I was checking out some of these really interesting, progressive and transformationally oriented spiritual communities in Boulder. See, I don't even know how to, I feel nervous saying spiritual anymore. I know that wasn't your intention, but I'm just more aware of it in this moment. But that's how I saw them. I saw these very open, spiritual and liberal religious communities in Boulder, Colorado. And as much as I was running away from Judaism, I was also checking these out because I was curious. Mm -hmm. And so it was the Jewish New Year. And the second day of that holiday, we were at a retreat center, at a yoga retreat center in the mountains. And the rabbi was led this three hour long visual, guided visual meditation. And at some point she asked us to let three things come to us that we're supposed to work on in the coming year. And what came to me very loudly, very clearly was my relationship to my community. And it was the Jewish community. And I was just kind of shocked. And I was processing that for the next week. And it was just before Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the Jewish calendar, arguably. And it was also happened to be a Friday. And I was talking with my roommate in Boulder, who was, because it's, it's Boulder. She was also a transpersonal psychologist. <laughs> we were talking. And I shared with her this thing about the word communitas that had appeared multiple times. 
And she said, oh, it sounds like the universe is trying to send you a message. And it was only at that moment that I realized that message was very similar to what I had received in the meditation of my relationship to my community and the, the word meaning the feeling to community. And I remember feeling very emotional around that. We kept on talking, but I was almost like tearing up. It felt like there was a guidance. It, like it was sort of too many things had lined up for me to doubt it. I, it, was, it was more than a coincidence. And as I was talking with her, two minutes later, I had this thought that really felt like it came from beyond. It was a thought, it was first person. It wasn't someone saying you, but it was I. And the thought, it was probably the loudest thought I've had in my life. And it was, I'm going to be a rabbi. And as I heard that thought in my mind, I felt waves of energy pass through my body from top to bottom, sort of like maybe four or five of these kind of like really strong shivers, but a bit more ethereal than that. And as I'm just, I was just experiencing that and, and I knew that something had changed and it, it, I didn't know quite what to do with it yet, but something was different. And after my Orthodox years, three or four, three years of that, I remember there was a moment where Shabbat, the feeling I would get on Friday afternoon or Friday evening when Shabbat would start, I remember it fading away when I, when I was a teenager. And after that moment, I felt it come back. It was very strange. I walked down the hill that Friday evening to go to the synagogue down the hill from where I lived. And there was something new in the air. Like there was a feeling that had returned to me after about six years of being missing. So to be sure, because I was someone who had been really trained not to take signs lightly and not to be overly serious if something like this happened. So I asked for more signs and I got two dreams that came to me in my dreams, really like literal dreams. And one of them, I was a rabbi and I was making peace between people who were arguing about something. Someone had wronged someone else and I was trying to mediate. And in the other one, I saw the image of a rabbi I really respected, Reb Zalman Shakhtar Shalomi, who was a very important sort of paradigm shifting rabbi. And it was like, right under him was a, a picture of another rabbi I knew who had been ordained by him. And it was almost, if someone took a pitcher of oil and turned it forward, it was like oil, olive oil was draining, revealing the picture of the, the lower image. Basically, biblically, oil is a symbol of like anointing someone or ordaining someone. And so I interpreted that as some kind of lineage or something to do with me being a rabbi, basically. And I ended up going to Reb Zalman Shakhtar Shalomi, who was still alive and living in Colorado at the time. And I had a, so I had visited him once or twice before. And I told him this whole story I just told you. And he looks at me and he says, so God wants you to be a rabbi. What can I do for you? Uh-huh. And I sort of in my mind was like, to tell me that, that's all I needed. This isn't fake. This isn't crazy. Like you, someone who lives your life like this is telling me that this is legitimate. And he basically said, what are you going to do to find out if you want to be a rabbi? You know, are you going to, are you going to argue with God? You know, are you going to, you should shadow rabbis. You should check out rabbinical schools. He gave me a, a recommendation for rabbinical school. And basically I began a five-year process essentially of discerning whether I actually wanted to do this. But the initial call moment was really miraculous and special. And what happened after that was a series of steps to figure out what do I do in light of that? And how do I navigate this in a grounded way, in a way that's sensible and not overly commit and also not deny what could be? Hmm. Well, I would love to very quickly just hear over the course of the five years of you studying, maybe what were some some of your biggest moments where you realize, yes, this is 
reassuring. I'm definitely on the right path. I'm going to continue. And maybe what were some challenges that you had to check back in with yourself and say, is this really the right thing for me? Because I think a lot of us, we feel called to do something and there's the initial excitement and we might even get the validation from someone we admire, like what happened in your case. And it can be the first couple of years especially might be really hard where it's the, the excitement maybe wears off a little bit and then we're we're faced with real challenges that if we're not equipped to handle them could push us back to the life of comfort or the life that we thought we were supposed to live so i'd love to hear maybe just one or two things during that five-year uh, stint in rabbinical school that stand out to you as paradigmatic moments well, the first day of our orientation, the, the dean of students shared a teaching that at the time I thought was absurd. And I really came to realize its value. And he said, he quoted Rebbe Nachman of Bratzlav, who's sort of a late 1700s, early 1800s teacher. And he said, when you're following your life's path, when you're doing what you should be doing, where you're supposed to be at, things don't get easier, they get harder. Mm. <laughs> and I was kind of flabbergasted. And I don't know if he had this in mind in particular, maybe it was a spontaneous thing him sharing, but rabbinical school was incredibly intense. And I mean, at the very least, it was intense in terms of time. There were days in my second year out of five where I was waking up at 6 a.m., out the door an hour later, and I wasn't coming home until six or seven. And all of that was either prayer, work, or, I mean, prayer, study, or work, lunch meetings. There was no free time. And then coming home, putting my kid to bed, spending a little bit of time with my wife, and then staying up till one in the morning working. That was in the most intense semester. That was, that was three out of five days were like that. So just to give a sense of the, the effort involved. Now, some of the, the biggest insights I had that were positive and spurred me on was when I realized there was a whole body of work that related to my personal spiritual approach. And that was so incredibly healing and helpful. And it ended up being my, my capstone, sort of my final project was distilling a lot of that. So that was like the most positive. And that's really, that was the moment where I felt like I had come what I was looking for. But along the way, I, I guess you could call it imposter syndrome. It's not a lot of people in rabbinical school have imposter syndrome and it's often it's more, do I know enough or am I, you know, sort of, do I have enough gravitas? Am I holy enough? And there's a lot of stuff around gender that comes up around that because it's been such a male profession. I was the only cisgendered male that graduated from my class, meaning the other nine were not. Hmm. And so it's really turned, but there's a lot of this kind of baggage that can come from that just because of the history. So my imposter syndrome was more like, I am so incredibly not religious. I am so incredibly edgy and I'm a nice person. I don't, I'm not a, the word in Hebrew is a shovavnik, like a rascal. I guess I have some of that in me, but I like to get along with people. I'm not a particularly uh, disagreeable person overall, but my theology, my approach to Judaism is very controversial. And I, probably the most difficulty I faced is there was another student who didn't, didn't end up staying past the second year, but who basically had it out for me and who really, really disliked what I was doing and actively attempted to bully me and get me kicked out of school 
And someone basically who I had a nemesis and I wasn't trying to have a nemesis. I mean, I didn't particularly like this person either, but I was keeping to myself. And this person was calling me out publicly and was going behind my back to the administration and was in private saying really nasty things to me. And so some of those were, were struggles, but I, I knew after the first year that I was in this, I was in it to win it. There wasn't a question whether I was going to stay. And I, because of that, I, it allowed me to kind of avoid some of the questions of, oh, is this right? Is it not? Like, look, I have a kid, I'm married. I want to get on with my life. I entered when I was about 29 or 30. It was just sort of, it was time. It was time to move forward. So having a deep sense of purpose there really, really helped me when things got rugged. Mm. Well, I would love to hear, I know that you do one-on-one counseling as, as part of your offering and, and what you do. I'd love to hear what type of people typically reach out to you for counseling and what, it, what does it look like to be talking to you one-on-one? Like we, we've already covered so many different areas that you have some level of expertise in, or at least have some sort of foundation in. I would love to hear what are, what are people usually reaching out to you with and where do you usually go from there? Yeah. So a lot of people, a lot of what people are facing is fairly universal. So the the anxiety and, and day-to-day struggles, communication issues, most of the people I work with are not people who are doing well and just want self-knowledge, which is a really fun group to engage with. And it tends to be most people who hire counselors. <laughs> I have something a bit more pressing. Now, it doesn't mean that so self-knowledge is basically the, uh, the medicine for a lot, of, a lot of what ails us as human beings, but people don't necessarily know that's what they're looking for initially. So I have clients who know that I do body-centered work. And so they want to work through a life issue and find it helpful to work through it in that way. So someone has, let's say, a, a family dynamic that they're struggling with in, the, in their family. And so it, can, it might start there, but it will often get into something, a deeper realization about what's happening. I do a lot of, there's a technique that I learned through focusing, which again, is one of these schools of somatic experiencing, you could say. Actually, the founder of somatic experiencing, who's, who's quite well known, his teacher was the guy who started focusing, Eugene Gendlin. And that school still exists. And, and that's how I'm trained. Uh, my, I would say that's how I'm certified. I've looked at an, a number of different schools from my own personal experience. But the idea is this thing called clearing the space. So sometimes people aren't ready to tune into their bodies because they've got too much going on. They're too stressed. They're too ungrounded. There's the thoughts are whirling around. So clearing the space and it can take a lot lot of forms, but it's basically a practice that allows people to settle in enough so that they can feel into their bodies. So there are people who have asked me simply to do clearing the space exercises with them. They don't want to go into the nitty gritty because if someone, for example, has trauma, right? PTSD of various forms, going into an emotion that's embodied can actually make it worse. It's not always the right tool, but clearing the space looks like having often having people tune into a a good memory or a good place that they create in their minds and then noticing if there's anything that's getting in the way. And if there is, it's sort of removing those items, if they can feel it in their body maybe, or if they can just visualize it, putting it in a package and sending it off as far away as it needs to be. It's still there, 
but they can rest in a more calm state. And from that, a lot of positive insights can come. So anxiety, some people want to talk about spiritual transformation. Some people are just curious about the relationship between Judaism and the body. And really, I'm open to talking about whatever people want, but people who come to me know that I'm a rabbi and they know that I have an embodiment orientation. It, it tends to go in those, in those directions. And so just to quickly touch on that, that little bit at the end there around the connection between Judaism and embodiment or, or the body, are there, any, are there any stories in Jewish history that, like, I, I don't remember in Hebrew school ever particularly learning about <laughs> uh, embodiment or the, I don't know, like Moses parting the Red Sea ever being connected <laughs> to something in, in his body. <laughs> Are there any stories in Jewish history that, that stand out to you as emblematic of what it means to be embodied and Jewish? Sure. But first, I'm going to tell a meta story. So yeah. as, as just, just as much as you don't remember Moses talking about embodiment, you also, I'm sure, don't remember Moses talking about uh, the prayer service. Because the prayer service is not in the Bible. It came much later. And the wisdom and the genius of the people who brought in the prayer service was to tie it into the biblical narrative. And to make it sound like it was very ancient in ways or, but it's not, it was an innovation that was reinterpreted. I mean, the, the synagogue, did Moses ever go to synagogue? The answer is no, hundred percent. No, it didn't exist that the same question of why, how is embodiment Jewish could be, how is any of this Jewish? How is, how are the practices that people grew up with Jewish? The answer is, well, it says so in the Torah. It's like most of the time, the vast majority of the time, it doesn't, it says something that people told you was about the practice that we do now. So just to give a, a little bit of background about how Jewish interpretation works. So with that in mind, some of the best examples of Jewish embodiment practices come from the mystical tradition, from the Kabbalah, which goes back arguably a thousand years, maybe closer to 800, 900 in, in the sources that I'm going to quote. And for anyone who doesn't know the definition of mystical, mystical and spiritual are often fairly aligned, but basically a mystic is someone who experiences the divine as opposed to thinks about them or has imaginations about, right? And so Jewish mysticism is essentially a body of teachings and practices that arise from schools of thought and practitioners who are doing that kind of thing together. So Kabbalah emerged, at least was first written down in the Middle Ages. And you have teachings of that era Again, I don't know if I can give you a story directly. Well, not a Kabbalistic story. Well, how? Here's one. The first known Kabbalist, the first person ever to really write anything, and it's all historical. So, oh, did this person really exist? Okay, these are questions as well. But his name was Isaac the Blind. I don't know if he was actually blind, but he was called Isaac the Blind. And one of the things it's reported he could do from his students is he could tune into their body auras. That there was something, this is the very origins of Kabbalah, he is recorded as having tuned in to people's embodied experience as he's helping them. So who knows, but there could have actually been at the very beginnings of this practice of this school of thought, some actual somatic body centered uh, components. And you have in some of the earlier writings of Kabbalah, this idea There's a question you could find in a lot of medieval Jewish philosophy of what does it mean for God to have body parts? God's face is mentioned in the Bible, God's hands, God's eyes, right? God is walking in the Garden of Eden at one point. 
And the main answer that we think of today is the rational philosophical answer of, oh, it's a metaphor. God doesn't have any body parts. God is one and we can't say anything more and God is beyond our comprehension. But a Kabbalistic answer is, oh, no, no, no. God has body parts and we don't. Mm. This isn't a hand that we have. We don't have eyes. God has eyes. We have something that's a symbolic representation of a metaphysical eye. And so in that same teaching, which appears in a couple places, the idea is that every part of our body, therefore, is a conduit to tapping into a more subtle metaphysical reality. So our heart is a heart, but also if we tune into it, we can discover something much more profound through that encounter. And that is a fairly decent description of what it's like to have a somatic process, to have an, to be present with a part of our body and discover something that's lying beneath. So that's fairly early on in Kabbalah. The other story I want to say is the founder of the Hasidic movement. It's an Eastern, the, sort of the next great movement in Jewish mysticism was Hasidism, started in the 1700s. Today we see people who have a particular style of dress who are known as Hasidic Jews. That came later. Initially, the initial Hasidic teachers were popular spiritual innovators. They were rebels. They were being excommunicated because they were so out of the box. And one of the things that the founder, or at least the sort of the person who is seen as the founder today, the Baal Shem Tov, he, there's one of his writings, his letters was to his student. And he basically told him, don't be so ascetic. Don't deny your body that you need to have a positive relationship to your body. If you're going to tap in to the nourishment of the world, to spirit, to divinity, that the way that he was teaching was a very embodied way. In fact, he had a whole practice, a whole philosophy called Avodashibagashmiut, which basically means spiritual work through embodiment. All right. This was like 1700s Hasidic, and it's recorded. And there's a bunch of teachings that basically say that same thing. If we ignore our bodies, we're ignoring our souls. And that God isn't beyond us in heaven or, you know, our souls aren't this etheric thing that they're actually connected to our bodies and we can tap into the physical world nature, our bodies, everywhere we look, there's a chance to connect to something meaningful and deeper. And it is a very quintessential Hasidic message. Well, Rabbi Matthew, this seems like a good segue into your book that's in the works. I know that you and I have discussed your book that's, it sounds like it's almost at completion. It's called Embodied Kabbalah, Jewish Mysticism for All. And I would love to hear, I mean, we've spoken a lot about it already, but what are you trying to distill into your book? And, and what do you hope that people eventually take away from the book? I would say it has two major goals. One of them is really a lot of what we've been talking about today is it is the results of this couple of decades long journey from secular life to Orthodox Judaism, to embodied spirituality, transpersonal psychology, and back into Jewish study, where I have managed to distill a Jewish language for embodied practice, for groundedness. And it is using Jewish teachings from many different eras to show what it is like to speak about this kind of personal transformation through this Jewish language. And secondly, it is a very intentionally opened up perspective 
on Jewish wisdom for anyone of any background. That the, the teachings themselves are translated, but they're on every page, they're surrounded with commentary. And some of that commentary is explanatory because you can translate a Kabbalistic teaching into English, but it doesn't make much sense a lot of the time unless you know all the references. I mean, mystics in any tradition are experiencing things that are beyond words in many cases. And so they use symbols to communicate. And the Jewish mystics tend to use biblical imagery and early rabbinic teachings, and they kind of blend it all together to say something very beautiful. But even in translation, it's not so clear. So there's explanatory commentary that just line by line, what is actually being said here? And then the other commentary that exists, I give a little bit of historical, who was the author, that kind of thing, but also I compare it to other traditions. I bring in psychological perspectives. I talk about embodiment practices. There's reflections on many of the pages to help people get more intimately connected on a personal level to the teachings. So there is a great need in our world for tools and practices that are gonna help us as humans navigate these challenges and these transitions we're going through. And this is, in that second goal, an effort to open up the gate to Jewish wisdom. And there's 42 texts in total. Six of them have never been in translation before. So there's the first time they're being translated, but it's a collection that is very much in line with a lot of the questions people are asking today about how can we live better lives? How can we know ourselves more deeply? How can we be of service to the world? How can we, if we are in a leadership position, what is the most responsible way that we can act? Those are basically articulated using, in many cases, hundreds, thousands year old texts to show this value, valuable and valued wisdom. And in many cases, for the first time being made accessible for people of all, of all backgrounds. Mm. Well, those are all very important questions. I think that anyone living a self-examined life, uh, it would behoove you to ask those types of questions to yourself. And it really sounds like a wonderful book, and I've I've really appreciated the conversation so far. I'm learning so much. Just you know, like one of the one of the great joys of being an interviewer and hosting this podcast is that a lot of times I can have someone like you discuss a subject matter that is relatively novel to me, and I get to learn so much just by asking a couple of questions. So. Uh, to that end, I just have a couple of more things I wanted to go over with you. You've, you've touched a little bit on maybe mentors and, and teachers in your life, but have there been any people who have been the most influential on, on the person you are and maybe one or two lessons that you've learned from your top spiritual teachers, mentors? Sure. Well, I'm, I'm very lucky, fortunate to have a, a pretty big list of significant spiritual mentors in my life, starting with when I was saying when I was 16 years old, uh, this teacher, her name's Andrea Silverstone. She lives in Calgary and her classes when I was a teenager just opened me up to a whole world. And as much as I didn't follow that path in the, or in the Orthodox Jewish way and that kind of more traditional uh, life, she had a really profound ability to connect with teenagers and to help, I could say for myself, I know a number of others in that group move into another phase of, of being, that there was more to life than secular society <laughs> with all of its wonders. I mean, secular society brings us so much openness and acceptance 
and scientific mindsets, but there's a, a layer of reality that I just never knew existed before that class. And so that alone was a huge gift. And I still carry on many of those teachings into, into my book. I've mentioned one or two of them today. So that had a big impact. I would say my next most influential teacher who I remember very fondly, I'm still in touch with, is a psychologist by the name of Beth Hedva. And she has a really beautiful blend between psychology of like clinical psychology, more sort of, I guess, mainstream and transpersonal. And what she does is it's sometimes when people are spiritual counselors, they can eh, sometimes be less grounded or less practical or sometimes just less responsible. But she is incredibly responsible. She's very, very concerned about who she works with and how, how what impact she has. And she has access to this absolute treasure trove of wisdom. And the books that she recommended to me were transformative. A lot of my book is a blend of what I learned from her and Jewish language years, years later that I encountered. And she was the one in who kind of asked the right question of like, what's stopping you from moving to Colorado? What's stopping you from going to Naropa? And just that question alone was very, very beneficial. She's also the one who introduced me first to embodied practice. Uh, someone who I, I want to mention who was a very good connector for me, influential in my relationship with the environment and with nature, uh, was my, I guess, recently departed uh, professor, Dr. David Lertzman, who was, he was taking business students, like future oil execs, basically from, from Calgary Business School and bringing them out into nature and having them meet indigenous elders and having them spend a full 24 hours alone in the woods as, as a solo and basically helping people develop these really deep connections to nature and to themselves. And he remember at one point on that retreat I went on, he said, I, I should have been a therapist or something like that. Cause he really loved helping people with their inner problems, but he was a really, really amazing uh, teacher and healer and musician and someone who helped connect me to a lot of the, the people that I ended up learning from down the road and in a sort of beautiful way of passing on his teachings so he, he died very suddenly last year, but in the, I hadn't talked with him much for five years. And in the month before he died, we talked many times, just as it happened. And he was asking me to do a, an innovative rite of passage for his son, who's going to be turning 13 in three years. And since he died, basically, I used the inspiration from those conversations and we're creating what's called a bar adama, which is a bar mitzvah. You could translate it as someone who is beholden to the commandments. It's like a legal adult in Jewish law. And a bar adama is someone who is beholden to the earth. It's basically a nature-based rite of passage with Jewish wisdom that's kind of holding that. And so I'm, I'm carrying that on. And yeah, so there's, he had a really uh, deep influence in, in my life. And the last, well, there's so many to name. I already named Reb Zalman, but uh, my teacher, uh, Rabbi Tzvi'i Shalom, he runs a school called Kuduma, and he really helped me understand that there was this intimate link between Jewish spirituality and embodiment practices. And in fact, a lot of the texts that I've translated come from the references section, the endnotes of his book, The Kuduma Experience. So he, he collected a number of teachings that I found very valuable for, for this work. And I think I'll, I'll say lastly is my teacher, Rabbi Arthur Green, who's writing the foreword for my book, but he is a very, very impressive, renowned translator of Jewish mystical texts. He really believes in 
creating what he calls a seeker-friendly Judaism. He wants the most spiritual people who grow up in our community, most of whom leave, many of whom become impressive Buddhist teachers. And his, he's, he's in his 80s now. A lot of the Jews from his era who were interested in spirituality became influential Buddhist teachers or something like that. There's a lot of really, a lot of that. And so he wanted to create a place that was friendly for those really passionate people. And simultaneously, he's quite an orthopraxic person. He has a very traditional lifestyle. He's very concerned with the Jewish people, the future of the Jewish people. But over the time in rabbinical school, we had some conversations where I really came to learn that he was very excited about the project that I'm going on. That's much more universal. It has these global ramifications and it's very controversial and in it's innovativeness, but he's very supportive. And and that's been that's really meant a lot to me for someone of his standing. He just won the National Jewish Book Award last year. Like that happens for one author a year. And for someone of his standing to be so supportive, to write the foreword and to sort of have my back a little bit in some of these more challenging issues has, has really meant a lot. So, yeah, I mean, more to say, I'm very blessed with a lot of, of great mentors over the years, but those are certainly uh, a list of a few of them. Yeah, it sounds like you've had many beautiful teachers and, and teachings. Books were brought up a, a couple of times in there. I would love to hear uh, maybe two to four books that you would point my listeners to that have been influential in any way in your life that just helped you develop as a person. Well, it's, it's, it's good. I, I guess this is going to be audio, but behind me on the video, there's, there's a number <laughs> of books. And some of these, let's see, I, I mean, I recommend the Zohar. <laughs> To anyone it's a it's like the main kabbalistic book for the middle ages but it's not it's not light reading and in fact it's kind of impossible to understand without a, a teacher <laughs> so it's a great book and it's you know this is one of the 13 volumes or something translated in english um but things that are a bit more practical here uh it's actually it's not even behind me right now but there's one called farther shores by Ivan casson which is a very grounded approach to mysticism from a more secular mindset. It's not a religious book. It's about people who are having altered states of consciousness and how to deal with them. And it's written by a psychiatrist who's also a transpersonal psychologist. It's very, very grounded practical advice for people, especially who experience really profound moments and might actually have a hard time staying balanced in them. It was a very, very important book for me when I was uh, in my early 20s. But any age, people can benefit from it. Yvonne Casson. There is actually another book. Here we go. Yeah, this is it's called A Journey from Betrayal to Trust or Betrayal, Trust and Forgiveness is sort of the next edition that came out. And that's from my teacher and mentor, Beth Hedva. It goes kind of in a Jungian sense, archetype by archetype in each chapter. So there's a chapter on the betrayal of the mother, a chapter on the betrayal of the father, a chapter on. So all these different ways and betrayal in this definition is human beings are not perfect. And as children, especially, or when we fall in love, we project onto people as though they are these like deeply important subconscious representations that they are like the embodiment of what we want in a beloved or our mother as children is so much more than just a physical human being. And so because humans are not archetypes, they are not perfect. They're going to betray us inevitably. They're going to mess up and the journey then is to find that archetype, that symbol, that deep source of nourishment within. So that's the journey from betrayal mm. to trust is trusting in truly what is that place within us that loves us unconditionally if our physical mothers can't? What is that place within us that supports us on our journey unconditionally, even if our outer father can't? And so it's that, that idea. And it's a really, a really beautiful work. 
Another one that comes to mind is the Kaduma experience by Tzvi'i Shalom, uh, which is this great blend of Jewish spirituality and embodiment. And it's a whole philosophy that he's developed. Um, you know, and just another teacher I didn't mention that I've had a really wonderful mentoring relationship with, Rabbi Tirza Firestone, and she's got a number of books. The one I like personally the most is her, it's a spiritual autobiography called uh, With Roots in Heaven. And it's about her growing up in a fairly strict and in many ways emotionally abusive uh, sort of orthodox house going out learning about the world of of eastern mysticism and hinduism and kind of really temporarily joining a cult she went on this radical journey and eventually rediscovering who she was and it's just a, a lovely journey she's also got a book called from wounds to wisdom which is about intergenerational trauma healing and she's a psychologist and a rabbi and has this wonderful wonderful blend so there's a lot more that I would recommend, but we'll end there because I don't want to yeah. give people too much, too much homework, you know, <laughs> uh, but yeah, those are, those are some of my favorites that come to mind. Awesome. Yeah. They, they all sound wonderful. Thanks for the recommendations. And yeah, I would love, I'm going to link to all those in the show notes and I would love to hear from you. Where can I point my listeners to connect with you? I know that you have a, a podcast that's in the works and just getting started and then your website, et cetera. Where would you point my listeners to connect with you? Yeah, so the best place to reach me via email is info at makora.com. That's M-E-K-O-R-A-H. And makora.com is the website that I started with my wife, Melina. And it's an online spiritual center. We offer events through there. It's If someone wanted to talk to me, consul- consultation about spiritual counseling, or I also teach a lot of one-on-one Kabbalah classes. Basically, it's sort of a custom class that I offered and that people want to explore this material through the library of Jewish wisdom, uh, regardless of background, I, I teach that and Macora.com lists those offerings. Yes, my podcast, that's just the trailers out the hopefully the it's the rest is going to follow very soon. It's called we're in this shift together. And it's an exploration of the inner journey and the outer journey, how we together as humans can collaborate to find our way through some of these challenging times. And it's basically me interviewing people who I find interesting and who are offering innovative, creative, spiritual, not necessarily, some of them are scientists, some of them are researchers, some of them are doctors. And basically the, the way forward, it's that our collaborative wisdom can, can help us evolve and shift as, as a collective. Love it. Well, we've already had such a full conversation, but is there anything that we did not cover today so far that you would like to bring into the conversation now? Maybe any any wishes for anyone who ends up listening to this and anything at all that you would like to invite into the conversation before we begin to wrap up? I, I would say that I have a, a particular interest in being in dialogue with people who are struggling with a sense of meaning in their lives. And I mean that in the biggest sense. And I, there's a a Jewish teaching that atheism is from God and it's God's way. This is a bit of a controversial teaching. I really like it though, that it comes from God to deconstruct false notions of God. (laughs) That atheism is this very natural, good, divine response to be like a holy thing to believe because it deconstructs these things that we've inherited that are wrong and misleading. And I know for myself at points in my own life, and I meet a lot of people like this, who rationally, their experience or their belief has led them to deduce that there's no inherent meaning here. And that can cause a bit of a struggle because 
I know a lot of people who yearn for a belief in something and it doesn't, it, how do we convince ourselves to believe? It doesn't really work like that for humans, for most of us. So my perspective is that a lot of the answers, so to speak, to the meaning question can come through introspection and the kind of somatic work that I help lead people to, I think, you know, basically I have a, a desire to help people in that way. So if, if there's anyone out there listening who has a belief structure that they see as true and they don't find particularly empowering for them, or it's, there's moments where it just, it's a struggle for, for meaning. What is, what does this all mean anyways? Oh, it's all useless. Those kinds of thoughts. I'd be very interested in hearing, hearing from you. Cause I, yeah, maybe as a group or maybe one-on-one, I, I just feel like there's a lot of potential that stage of like philosophy can be very fruitful and lead towards something very meaningful. Um, I think if it comes from a, from a place of, of that inner experience or that self-awareness. Well, this is, it's almost like an alley-oop pass into my last question because the podcast is called Mike's Search for Meaning. And the last question that I ask all of my guests, you really outlined how important it is for you to help other people find meaning in their life. But I'm interested in hearing to you or in your words, what does it mean to live a meaningful life? Hmm. I like that. So I would say, and this is, I, so I, I wasn't expecting this question, so it's good. There's this old Jewish teaching about someone who asks a teacher a very big question. And, and he says, the challenge is to say it on one foot, which is metaphorically like, don't take time, just answer. Like, what does it mean? <laughs> and so on one foot, I would say, it is very important to find why we're here. And for me, if I don't know why I'm here, most of my work should or was oriented about why am I here? Like what, what's, what's the right path for me? In the same way that I would look for who, is, who should I marry if I want to get married, right? I did, like, who is my spouse? That's a very important question. And I dated a lot. And I always found that if I didn't, even though I wanted to be able to casually date, I didn't have it in me. I wanted to find the one. And so my relationships wouldn't last very long if I wasn't, until my wife, I never had a relationship last more than eight months. And besides that, they all lasted no more than three. It was like, it was so deeply, it was, a, a, it was burning in me to find the purpose, find the reason, find the match, find the right one. And that's the same I felt for my, the work that I do is I'm open to it evolving and changing, but that's why I'm here. So step one was find why I'm here. And it took a number of years, a lot of turns. It took me 34, 33 years to feel like it all clicked, right? From zero to 33 or 34. And so, but it's worth, if you can do it, it's, it's like, it's worth the journey. And once you're there, it's just a matter of all of these practices of, of self-awareness, of, of physical health and those foundations of, of, finding social support that's, that's nourishing and, you know, figuring money is important as much as I wish it wasn't. It's important in life to feel like you have at least your bases covered. So step one, find your purpose. Step two, live your purpose, you know, and do all of the maintenance work you need to make that be able to happen at least for part of your life. And, and I would say step three is know when to take a break, right? Like that kind of, Sabbath mindset, the Shabbat consciousness, being able to sink into that, whether it's weekly or whatever, like finding a way to just appreciate all you have on a regular basis to keep that fuel going and to celebrate. Really, there's a lot to celebrate in our world, even despite all of the challenges. So 
there you go. I'm standing on one foot. That's yeah. my that's my answer of, of living a meaningful life. Yeah, and I, I really want to underscore the importance of that last bit there because that's something that once you find your purpose and start acting on your purpose, it's really easy to get lost in it and forget to just rest and take stock of the, the simple things and what's going right. And uh, that's, I, I'm certainly going to sit with that for a little bit after this conversation and reflect on where, where can I give myself a little bit more of a break and to rest. Rabbi Matthew, I, I really appreciated this uh, conversation. I, I want to end with acknowledgement that one of the things that I really appreciate about your approach is that it's not dogmatic in any way. You're not saying like, you know, Jewish teaching is where it's all at and you guys all need to do this my way. There's, there's much more of this invitational quality about uh, your work and what you're doing. And in a world where everything seems to be pegged in, I'm either this or I'm that, uh, it's black and white, it's polarizing, there's lots of push and pull. You're just, in my experience, doing something that works for you and saying, hey, like, these are different experiences that have been really helpful for me. I'm going to walk my path. If that's inspiring to you, like, come along with me, and you can walk on your path with me. And if not, and if working with me helps you realize maybe Judaism isn't for you, maybe you want to go down the Buddhist route, I'm open to that too, but at least you're walking your path. So I think that's really important that gets lost in religion, politics, and all sorts of modern constructs. And this word again, refreshing comes to mind. It's really refreshing to see someone who's bringing this into their teachings in such what might be thought about as rigid and structured uh, formats. You're saying it doesn't have to be that way, right? There's a, there's a way in which this can continue to evolve and we can take ancient wisdom and bring it into the modern world, but we can also shift where necessary as you're inviting in your podcast. So Long way of saying thank you for coming on. I, I really appreciate the work that you're doing. All right. Thanks so much, Mike. Thanks for having me. And uh, wish you all the best in your, your continued search for meeting. Thank you very much. And yeah, to all the listeners, I, I hope that you continue walking your path. And whenever you're listening, have a good rest of your day or evening and take good care. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to Mike's search for meaning. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode with your friends, and leave a review. I look forward to seeing you next time, my friends. And until then, stay safe, stay well, and keep living with purpose. Peace.